0: While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons.
1: Now people don't often talk about faith publicly, do they? In fact, I remember Peter Mandelson some years ago in an interview, he said, we don't do faith. But when somebody's been in trouble or some difficulty and they're interviewed on the radio or television and are asked how they coped, then you might hear the phrase, well, I have. Now, we sympathize with people who have gone through great trials we hope we never have to go through. Yet when people talk about their faith, it can be something quite vague. Sounds a bit like Mr. Micawber in Dickens' David Copperfield whose catchphrase is, something's bound to turn up. He was the eternal optimist. There's comfort in believing that there's a purpose in suffering, but often these people sadly don't know what that purpose is. Faith of that sort centres on the individual, their stoic nature, their strength of character, or their resilience, or their faith itself even. It's a faith, but... Faith in what? If we're to have effective faith, a faith that will last and not be disappointed, we need certainty. Now, faith in God that the Bible speaks about is quite different from the way the word faith is used commonly in society. Biblical faith doesn't start with me and my efforts, but it starts with God and with Christ. That faith is grounded in certainty, who Jesus is, what he's able to do, and so on, which you and I can find in the historical accounts in our Bibles. And this is a faith worth having, and we're going to explore that today. Now we're back in Matthew's Gospel, continuing the series that was studied over a year ago. I know a good number of you, including myself, weren't Uh, at this church at the time, that you were last in Matthew. But uh, we're back in Matthew, and Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, God's King, the Son of David, the Son of God, as the opening sentence of uh, chapter 1 shows. And among the gospel writers, it's Matthew who most explores how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures. And in his Gospel, part of which we've just we find Matthew writes more briefly than either Mark or Luke do when he gives an account of the same event as a result, the reader's attention is drawn to the significance of each event and what it teaches us rather than dwelling on the many details in the story which are of course interesting in themselves. So let's listen to Matthew again. You've got your Bibles open as we turn to Matthew. 9 verse 18, which says, while he was saying this. Well, at this point, Jesus is likely to still be in Matthew's house. We know this from the other uh, synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, and also looking back from verse 10 in this same chapter, chapter 9. Who else was there at this time? Well, Jesus, his disciples, there were some tax collectors, and a group of people called sinners. Now that just means people who were not in the elite religious group, who the Pharisees like to think of themselves as, and they looked down on the others. While he was saying this, verse 18 begins, well, what was going on? Earlier in this chapter, we read about that later, uh, we read of questions being asked about Jesus' and the disciples' behaviour. Why did they mix with people that the Pharisees disapproved of? And why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? Jesus was telling them why, and he started to explain to them this new thing that he was uh, going to do, the new thing he had come to do. And he told them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And using illustrations, he told them that their old rule-based religious worship wasn't able to contain the reality that the Messiah had come and was living among them. Something new was happening before their eyes. But the Pharisees had an unbelieving attitude towards Jesus and what he taught, and they would rather silence him. But these earlier discussions were curtailed by a man who bursts in with a serious problem. Verse 18, again. There's a synagogue leader, and he came and knelt before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. What a contrast to the other Pharisees who have just been undermining Jesus and looking down on what he said and did. Their confidence was in their self-righteous lifestyle. What they did, they didn't need anyone to tell them how to live. And they resented Jesus' teaching. And yet here is a man bowing down and worshipping Jesus, asking for his help, asking him to touch his daughter. And he's a synagogue leader too. And so we know his name's Jairus from the other Gospels. And the other Gospel writers fill in extra details, but they don't change the headline message. Jairus' daughter is dead. And he begs Jesus to come and lay his hands on her so that she will live. Now this account isn't about the death of an older person, where that death is still uh, very hard for the close family members to handle, but others can perhaps rationalize their grief somewhat, because it's an older person. But here it's the death of a young girl, 12 years old, and we all feel the shock of that when she's died this man's life has been shattered the daughter he loved and had great hopes for lies dead now we find death hard to talk about in our society it's a conversation stopper and we use euphemisms to describe it and you and i don't encounter death very often in our daily lives do we and when we do we have professionals to take care of the hard details. But not in the days that Jairus lived. They knew all about death because they had to sort out the details themselves. And this man is desperate. Yet Jairus asked Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter. Now this was unheard of in those days. In fact, if in Jewish society, touching a dead person makes you unclean for some time. And dead people don't come back to life either, as they knew well. But verse 19 tells us that Jesus was full of compassion. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Jesus responds immediately to Jairus's request. But then as you read on, you find there's another interruption, a woman who has had a severe medical problem for 12 years, interrupts and stops Jesus on the way, and he turns to her immediately. But we'll come back to her in a moment. How would Jairus' faith be tested by this interruption, where any delay, surely, could only make things worse? And it seemed that things had got worse. Look from the other Gospels, we can see that as Jesus was speaking to this woman, somebody came up, to say, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher any more. Now we don't see Jairus agreeing with that opinion, not to bother Jesus anymore. His faith is such that his original hope in Jesus bringing his daughter back to life is undimmed. The immediate circumstances appear to have worsened. And some people are suggesting that this venture should be aborted. But Jairus isn't looking at circumstances, but at Jesus. Jesus' character and his power to heal. Perhaps he had heard about Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son from the dead. You can read about that in Luke chapter 7. We don't read of Jairus objecting to this woman's interruption, frustrating as it must have been. And they're soon on their way again back to Jairus' house. And verse 23, when Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the 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 flute players, it says in in, in some versions, the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away, this girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. But we learn from other uh, literature, contemporary literature, that it was the custom in Jewish society that there should be musicians and singers to accompany the mourners when someone died. It was prescribed that even the poorest family should have at least two flute players and a professional singer to mourn and wail. And Jairus may well have been able to afford many more than this. So there was quite a noise going on of mourning. Jesus tells them to go because he says the girl is not dead, but asleep. The crowd laughed and mocked at Jesus. They knew what had happened. They knew that no one could bring this girl back to life and they found Jesus' claim to be able to heal her laughable. But when Jesus, again looking at the other Gospels, Jesus, his three disciples and the parents were alone with the girl. Jesus touched her by taking her hand and telling her to rise. And she did. Jairus' request was granted. His daughter lived and Jesus' power to heal had been demonstrated. Whose faith was genuine in this account? Well, clearly Jairus' faith. All that he had heard and knew about Jesus was proved to be true. Against all reasonable hope, he still believed and trusted in Jesus. And Jesus did not disappoint. He never will. And those who mocked and only thought about finishing their ritual had their faith in the certainties of life and death shown to be false. It was no faith at all. It was no comfort at all. And they are left looking foolish. But what about the woman who interrupted Jesus' journey? Her predicament wasn't as acute as Jairus' daughter's, but it was a severe chronic condition. She had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Luke says no one could heal her. Mark adds that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. And instead of getting better, she grew worse. This sickness would have made her ceremony unclean, so she's unable to join in any social activities. She had to avoid contact with others. Was her faith as Grace as faith? For well, the most she seems to hope for is that the merest touch of Jesus' cloak would cure her. That's as close as she's going to get. She couldn't uh, expect Jesus to be ritually unclean by touching her. Yet she said to herself, verse 21, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Was her faith mere superstition, or was it based on knowledge? See, back in chapter 8 of Matthew, he records that Jesus healed many. At the start of chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralyzed man, you know, the one let down through the roof. And as this woman was looking for a cure, she may, may well have been aware that other people had been healed by Jesus. But she was an outcast. She couldn't come openly. While she had faith in Jesus' power to heal, she didn't yet understand Jesus' love and compassion for people like her. She was fearful. So in verse 22 we read, When Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. He's saying to her, since you believe, your request is granted. It wasn't her faith, it was something inside her that achieved the healing. Only Jesus could do that. Her faith drove her to Jesus and Jesus' power heals her. So we can see that whether we begin with a strong, unshakable faith like Jairus's, or a hesitant, uncertain faith like this woman, it's Jesus' power alone and his willingness to heal that makes the difference. Why would you look anywhere else? And verse 26 tells us that news of this spread through all the region Whether it was because of Jairus, who was probably quite well known in that society, or because the woman had a long illness and people knew about her for ages, or even the expelled mourners from Jairus' house who did the telling, we're not told. But we're not finished yet. Verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Here's another aspect of faith, as we'll see. This is the first time Jesus has been called Son of David in Matthew's Gospel, apart from his reference in verse 1 of chapter 1. We notice at the start that Matthew loves to point back to the Old Testament as he shows his readers who Jesus is. Son of David is an important Old Testament title, and calling that is recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, God's promised King. But these two blind men are seeing spiritual truth that the religious leaders cannot see. Even though the blind men can't see with their eyes, they know Jesus is passing by from what the crowds are saying and they cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Now it won't be much later, sorry, until much later in Matthew chapter 16 that we hear Simon Peter replying to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But here are these blind men who know who Jesus is already. Their faith is based on God's word and the accompanying evidence that Jesus must be his promised king living among them. So when Jesus says to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Their faith is in who Jesus is. And Jesus touched their eyes saying, According to your faith it will be done to you. Now this doesn't mean that the amount of their faith determined the outcome. As with the woman, Jesus is saying, since you believe, your request is granted. Faith in Jesus is what Matthew is emphasising in these verses to his readers then and to you and me today as we read their eyes were opened. And Jesus warned them, sternly, see that no one knows about this. And that seems a strange warning to us, doesn't it? As so we'd expect Jesus to want people to know who he was by the things that he did. We don't have a direct explanation in the New Testament of why Jesus says don't tell anyone here, and also in a number of other places. But It seems to be because Jesus' main mission at this time was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And he wants them to use their ears and listen, not just feast their eyes on more spectacular miracles. So the result of healing these blind men was, in verse 31, they went out and spread the good news about him over that region. It's hard to keep good news to yourself, isn't it? Then in each example that we have seen, the trust of the person healed was in Jesus that he was able to heal, that he was the Messiah, and that he was worthy of worship. Jairus bowed down before him, remember. What have you and I seen from this passage so far? Have you seen that Jesus must be God, who has come from heaven? Have you seen that Jesus is full of compassion for those around him who are needy, even when their faith is small? Now these three examples of this passage are of people who needed physical healing and they came to Jesus in faith and they weren't disappointed. The object of their faith was not their own ability or their own skill in pleading, but in Jesus and his power. Yet you only have to look back a few verses in this same chapter, chapter 9, to see another man paralysed, unable to walk who was brought by his friends to Jesus for healing. And Jesus saw in him a far greater need. And the first thing he says is, in verse 2, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees complain that this amounts to blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? So Jesus asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. You see, you can't see if someone else's sins have been forgiven using your eyes. This is an example of what we call an attesting miracle, where the miracle Jesus does visibly attests to his authority in the invisible, the spiritual realm. And then in verse 6 you can read, But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Jesus has power to forgive sins and his power to heal provided the evidence that he is able to do this. So when you and I come to Jesus because we know that we need healing from that congenital sickness of a sinful heart, it's not the amount of faith we have, it's about who our faith is in that's important. Because if your faith is in yourself, your ability to turn your life around, then you're going to fail because the pull of your heart, which has you as its centre, is too strong for you to change. Neither can you make yourself a little bit better because you realise that or you reckon you reckon that maybe Jesus will accept you on the basis of your best efforts, won't he? That won't work either. Here's something that I read this week written a while ago from a pastor in the United Kingdom. He wrote, Trying to be a Christian never works, because the best we could achieve would not be enough. Trying might appear to be a worthwhile exercise, but it will inevitably end in delusion and failure. We don't become Christians by trying, but by trusting in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So who are you trusting today for the forgiveness of your sins. We've seen that whether we come with strong, unshakable faith like Jairus or hesitant, uncertain faith like the woman, it's Jesus' power alone and his willingness to heal that we can rely on. Isn't that good news? But some of you reading these verses, you say, well, what about Jesus' power to heal our physical sickness, because these are Jesus healing people from physical conditions. And you might be asking, as you read these verses, what about our minds and, and our bodies? How can Jesus help us there? We haven't time to deal with this in, in detail, but I'll, I'll say now that He is God and He is kind. We can trust Him. We know He can heal. After all, who better than the Creator? to restore his creation. course, if we do have sicknesses and illnesses, we should bring our needs to him, for him to answer as he sees best. He's not a God who we control, who does what we tell him, but we're sure that God is full of pity, and he's too good to be unkind. If we're in the church, we might share our need with those around us, and I know that, that we do this, and we can pray for each other. Fellow believers can be a great help to a large extent. Have you ever thought that another way of God providing for us is through medical provision and expertise? If we only spent a short time talking with one another, telling about how God has granted us relief from pain or sickness in the past, no doubt we'll have many more reasons to praise God, discovering how he was at work all the time, behind the scenes. Perhaps when healing came unexpectedly, or when a doctor or nurse surprisingly spots something which leads to a successful treatment. Was it their expertise? No. We thank God for that diagnosis, for God's intervention. See, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, about being given a thorn in his flesh. And for three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. He was pleading for healing. But God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It may be if you're suffering from a a sickness that deliverance in the trial is God's way for us rather than deliverance from the the trial. like those three friends found in the fiery furnace in Daniel's time. They didn't get um, deliverance from the trial, but they found deliverance in the trial. And maybe that is God's way uh, for us. And if you're tempted to despair because God doesn't seem to be answering your cries and you're tempted to try to sort things out yourself, remember who is the only one who won't disappoint? It's not you or me. It's only Jesus uh, who will not disappoint us. Jesus who is patient and full of compassion and who gives us grace to help us in our time of need. Keep him the focus of your faith in every aspect of life. But then finally, before we leave these verses, we find in verse 32, while they were going out, a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now, this is our final example for this morning of Jesus' power to heal. The man isn't able to express his need himself, so others bring him to Jesus in faith. And this man's demon possession You might say, well, what's going on here? Well, everyone who is not yet a member of God's kingdom is a member of Satan's kingdom under his control. And that's how all of us begin in life. Yet there seem to be some people who experience a particularly potent control of the evil one, where it's more than their minds or hearts which are under Satan's control, but control of their bodies as well. And Jesus has power to heal both physical and spiritual sickness. Look in verse 33. There's no if there, but when the demon was driven out. Jesus spoke and and the demon was driven out. The power of Satan over this man was completely destroyed by Jesus and the man regained his ability to speak. The crowd are amazed. This has never happened before. They know that Jesus is more powerful than the evil one. Yet in verse 34, the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They try to discredit Jesus and come up with all kinds of excuses uh, why people should not follow him. These Pharisees are people who will not believe who Jesus really is. They will not have Jesus as their king, their Messiah. They can't deny what Jesus has been doing, or... what he has done, so they try to attribute Jesus' work to the devil. They don't care if their argument makes sense or not. Any excuse not to believe will do for them. And they say that Jesus' authority comes from the prince of demons, which is clearly untrue. Now there are many people today like that who exhibit persistent unbelief in Jesus. They try to pass doubt on the Bible's account. They try to influence anyone who will listen, not caring about the truthfulness of their arguments. Anyone listening to them who hasn't read the Bible for themselves assumes that what these people say is correct, because they say it with such force and so often. Now if these doubters' arguments are proved ineffective, if it doesn't seem to be working, and Christian believers still flourish, they may, their attack may turn on the believers themselves. And there's a prayer meeting this afternoon for Christians who are just in that situation. We see physical persecution of believers around the world, but also uh, attempts to discredit Christians elsewhere. And in our own country, there are those who are opposed to the gospel and the design that God has clearly placed on his creation and they will not believe God's word. They want to impose their own order, or rather disorder, on society. They wish to silence Christian believers who gently and lovingly speak God's truth With attempts to change the law of the land, so that believers end up on the wrong side of the law when we're simply being faithful to God. The Bible makes it clear that such unbelieving people are under God's wrath already. That's the peril of unbelief and continuing in that unbelief. Don't be like them. Believe the good news that Jesus alone heals rebellious hearts which are against God. May you and I each be trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to bring us peace with God. Don't say that you're too bad. Don't say that you're not bad enough. You don't need forgiveness. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you hope and trust in Jesus, he will never disappoint you.
0: So fix your eyes on him.